Do you remember the first comic book you read? I, I really can't because comic books have been around me for as long as I can remember. When I was a young kid, five or six, I remember reading collected editions of Peanuts and Dennis the Menace, these newspaper comics that my grandparents never threw away from when my mother and her brothers and sisters were kids. They were fun at the time and they kept me entertained and for some reason they always smelled like peanut butter. The collected books, not my grandparents. During the summer, my father would load the family up in the pickup truck with a camper shell, and we would take trips to the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone National Park, Frontier Days, family reunions. To keep my sister and I from killing each other in the back of the truck during these long treks, my mother would buy these three packs of comics at the local town and country, and if I'd done all of my other reading, you know, Huckleberry Finn, Little Women, The Hobbit... Then I could read Star Wars comics, issues 7 and 8 of the original Marvel series, or maybe a Bugs Bunny comic or Andy Panda. When my grandparents came back from a trip to Germany, they brought me a German-language copy of Asterix and Cleopatra, and though I didn't understand a word that was written on the inside, the pictures kept me entertained for literally a decade until I found the English translation. When I was the ripe old age of 11, and you know how ripe 11-year-olds can be, I was on another of the famous Schleicher family vacations, and while stopped at a gas station, I somehow convinced my father to spend an entire dollar on World's Finest number 271. Why did I have to have this comic? It was 52 pages, so it was like reading a book, really, and it promised to reveal the secret origin of how Batman and Superman became a crime-fighting team. Little did I know... It would be nothing but excerpts from every Batman-Superman origin story from the last 30 years, cobbled around a weird plot about an android who thought he was a man and was hell-bent on destroying Superman. It did introduce me to the concept of the multiverse, which at the time left my head scratching, but I ended up wanting much more. For those who need the maths done for them, that $1 comic in 1981 would be the same as having a cover price of $3.26 today. That was also about the time I discovered Mad Magazine. Again, thanks to my grandparents who kept my uncle's collection before he went and joined the Navy. I was occasionally able to get my mother to shell out a whole 90 cents for the Raiders of the Lost Ark issue or Popeye or whatever else Mad was parodying that month. Mad Magazine was fairly easy to access as it could be found at the local Alco or the grocery store. These were lower-shelf items, an area of the newsstand that kids could easily access, as opposed to a high-shelf item where Heavy Metal and Savage Sword of Conan and Vampirilla would reside. <laughs> if you ever got up on your tiptoes to snag a copy of one of those, Mr. Peak, the owner of Peak's grocery store in my small Kansas hometown, would yell at you for even thinking of reading black-and-white magazines that were aimed at adults. My friend Tim had a gold-key trade paperback collection of Star Trek comics, now, this tome was passed back and forth between us until he went to high school and his sister got a hold of it, and I never saw it again. And that was about the same time that I got into reading pulp books, specifically The Adventures of Doc Savage. I picked up a first printing of the Bantam reprints at the Kansas State Fair one year, and the next year, DC Comics released Doc Savage No. 1 by Denny O'Neill and Adam Kubert. Since Doc Savage was a monthly comic, I knew I had to find out where I could get more of Doc's adventures. In hindsight, 
that series turned out pretty bad. And it started a decade-long promise of great Doc Savage comics that would ultimately try to bring the character to modern day and fail miserably. And now, in my defense, I didn't know where the series was headed, but it did lead me to finding comic shops in my area. I had a driver's license and an old 1976 Ford F-150, which was in pretty bad shape after all the family vacations, but it steered pretty good and the brakes worked, mostly. In and around 1984, there were four comic shops in Topeka, Kansas, three in Lawrence, and one I could easily get to at the Metcalf Mall in the suburbs of Kansas City. Not a single one of those comic shops exists anymore, and the Metcalf Mall was bulldozed and turned into a Lowe's about a decade ago. We'll come back to that later. Anyway, I would save up my lawn mowing money and odd job payments, and once a month or so, I would make a big loop between all of those stores with my friend Mike looking to find more comics. 1987 was a great year for me to really discover comics, as DC Comics had just finished Crisis on Infinite Earths, which at the time totally wiped away all of the events of World's Finest 271 and promised to fix DC continuity once and for all. John Byrne had just relaunched Superman, Robin was about to die at the hands of the Joker, don't worry, he got better, and Wonder Woman was about to get a defining look thanks to George Perez. Each time I would visit the comic book shop, I was always finding something new from DC Comics. Adventures of Superman, Captain Adam, Doctor Fate, Justice League International, The Question, Wally West as The Flash, and so many more comics lined the shelves. In 1987 alone, DC Comics would launch 32 new titles and miniseries, a virtual explosion of comics. But what if I were to tell you there was a time when DC Comics had even bigger plans? when the comics were going to get supersized, that DC planned to launch 52 titles in one year. That that $1.52 page World's Finest comic wasn't supposed to be the exception to what comics would be, but rather it was supposed to be the norm. And what if I told you that grand plan came crashing down? That Detective Comics, one of the publisher's top three books, was on the chopping block. That word around the spinner rack was, this was the end of DC Comics. I'm Steven Schleicher, and I want you to come with me on a journey through this tumultuous time and how history repeats itself again and again as we explore the DC implosion. Chapter 2, A Tight Spot. For the purposes of this story, and to keep everyone from getting confused, I'm going to use DC Comics throughout this series instead of the various names DC went through over the last 50 years. You don't need to write in telling me I was calling it DC Comics when at the time they were known as National Periodicals. I know. It's okay. We're going to make this story as simple to follow as possible, and trust me, this story has twists, turns, funky math, and a giant winter storm. I also don't think we need to spend time talking about the entire history of comic books, how they got started, and each milestone and success point the industry had along the way. But in order to understand how DC Comics found itself in a tight spot in the late 60s and early 70s, we do need to jump back to the 1950s. 
Following World War II, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union became strained as each country started an arms buildup of nuclear weapons and each started bringing their brand of rule to the rest of the world. For America, it was democratic freedom, duly elected officials put in place by the people who were free to express themselves, to start business, and create economic wealth for their families. Whereas the Russians took a socialist approach to the rule where the state owned everything and doled out whatever it deemed necessary for the populace to live. From a 30,000-foot view, it seems the two sides were diametrically opposed. For many, communism was a direct subversion of the American way of life. In the early 1950s, Senator Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin, a right-wing Republican, launched a series of publicized probes into the communist infiltration of the United States. Communists and their subversive messaging could be anywhere in the liberal teachings of a school teacher, an artist painting, the music on the radio, organizers who were fighting for the rights of workers, journalists, filmmakers, and even stories found in comic books were a never-ending source of communist infiltration. The hype machine and the personal publicity of the public hearings that followed McCarthy only stirred up the Red Scare that had everyone looking over their shoulder for anything that would subvert the beliefs of what America stood for. Celebrities and intellectuals who disagreed with McCarthy's political views were put under close scrutiny. This is a quote from McCarthy. Any man who has been named by either a senator or a committee or a congressman as dangerous to the welfare of this nation, his name should be submitted to the various intelligence units and they should conduct a complete check upon him. It's not too much to ask. Senator Joseph McCarthy, 1953. It's not too much to ask. It's not too much to ask to have someone's life turned upside down just because their views differed from McCarthy. The sad part was a large portion of the American public bought into his ideas. And to be clear, there were two types of perceived subversion taking place. The first was the actual investigations into Soviet espionage activities by those embedded in America, spies looking for nuclear technology or gathering intelligence information on military buildup and deployment. The federal government had laid the crime at the doorstep of two native New Yorkers, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Their trial had excited interest all over the world. The two admitted Communist Party members knew that they faced possible death sentences in the event of their conviction. But to the end, they both protested their innocence of the theft. In April of 1951, the federal court of Judge Irving R. Kaufman found the pair guilty as charged and sentenced them to death in the electric chair to pay for their crime of treason. Let's keep this fair, though. The United States was also actively engaged in espionage activities in communist countries as well. The second type of subversive activities under investigation was the rise in liberal thinking, away from the ideas of family, community, and religion that conservatives favored. For example, those involved in the civil rights movement would be considered subversive. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was put on a subversive watch list. Someone advocating for better living conditions from landlords would be considered subversives. Anyone promoting liberal thinking in media would be accused of promoting subversive thoughts. Composer Aaron Copland, you know, the dean of American composers, the composers of such masterpieces as Fanfare for the Common Man, Appalachian Spring, and Hoedown, which you may know as Beef, It's What's for Dinner, he was brought in for questioning. At the height of McCarthyism, HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, went on a witch hunt throughout the movie industry, causing many to lose their jobs 
instigating bans that prevented those willing to cooperate with the committee from working in the industry and landing them on the Hollywood blacklist. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? I know this hurts you, Mr. Welch. I'll but say it may, hurts. May I say, Mr. Chairman, as a point of personal privilege, I'd like to finish this. Senator, I think it hurts you too, sir. I'd, I'd like to finish this. Why do I bring this all up? Well, in Superman's early adventures, those that took place prior to 1945, he took on slum lords, corrupt military, poor living conditions in the prison system, and equality for all. According to McCarthy, Superman would be considered part of the subversion that was ruining America. Just before President Eisenhower was about to shut down all of this nonsense and before McCarthy was officially condemned by U.S. senators, the 1954 release of Frederick Wortham's Seduction of the Innocent was released. In it, Wortham, a German-American psychiatrist, argued that American comic books were harmful to children and were a serious cause of juvenile delinquency. He argued that comic books were full of excessive violence and nudity. If you're someone who has heard jokes about Batman and Robin being a gay couple or that Wonder Woman was a lesbian, you can thank Wortham for that. Today, these ideas, concepts, and imagery are generally accepted, but for a fear-fueled suburban landscape, comic books were another subversive plot to destroy the perfect nuclear family of the 1950s. This led to a round of public hearings as Wortham was brought before the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, where he claimed that the comic book industry was more dangerous for children than Hitler. I'll say it again, where Wortham claimed that comic books and the comic book industry was more dangerous for children than Hitler. Here's a quote from Wortham. Would you like in this uh, situation you talked about of showing the same thing over and over again until they finally believed it to... Uh what we heard about during the last war, Hitler's theory of telling a story over and over again. The big lie. The big lie. Yeah, well, uh, I hate to say that, Senator, but uh, I think uh, Hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry. They get the children much younger. They teach them race hatred at the age of four before they can read. To further complicate matters, the testimony by EC publisher William Gaines did not go over well as he was first questioned by Chief Counsel Herbert Beezer and then by Senator Estes Kefauver, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing uh, their names, over the violent imagery portrayed in comics his company published. Let me get the, the limits straight as far as, as what you put into your magazine. Is the sole test of what you would put into a magazine whether it sells? Is there any limits that you think of that you wouldn't put in a, into a magazine uh, because you thought a child shouldn't see or read about it? No, I wouldn't say that there is any limit for the reason you outlined. My only limits are the bounds of good taste, what I consider good taste. But you think that a child cannot in any way, in any way, shape, or manner, be hurt by anything that the child reads or sees? I do not believe so, sir. In other words, there, there would be no limit, actually, to what you put into your magazine. Only within the bounds of good taste. Your own good taste and saleability. Mr. Peter, in that connection, uh, Senator Chief Walker, I've just been looking over some of these. Uh, here seems to be your May 22nd issue, and here seems to be a man with a bloody axe. 
holding a woman's head up, which has been severed from her body. <coughs> you think that's in good taste? Yes, sir, I do. Uh, for the cover of a horror comic. A cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that the neck could be seen dripping from it and moving the body over a little further so that the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. Well, you've got blood coming out of her mouth, you see. A little. Then uh, here's blood on the axe, the hatchet. And uh, I think most adults are shocked by that. And here's another here's one. Here's another one. I, I want you to show him that one. This is the July one. Seems to be a man with a woman in the boat, and he's choking her to death here. With a crowbar. With a crowbar. Is that in good taste, you think? I think so. How could it be worse? Well, Mr. Chairman, I, I don't... Senator, Mr. Council bear with me. I don't think that it's really the function of our committee to argue with this gentleman. I, I believe that he has given us about the sum and substance of his philosophy, but I would like... While the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency did not blame comics for causing crime, it did recommend the industry tone down the content. While not a direct threat, that wording heavily implied that the comic book industry needed to control itself or the government would do it for them. This was the same pressure put on the movie industry in the 1930s, which resulted in the Hayes Code, a code of conduct and self-censoring that drove the movie industry for nearly 30 years. In addition to that, the moral panic that accompanied the release of Wortham's first public attack on the comic industry in 1948 grew to such a frenzy that in Spencer, West Virginia, priests, teachers, and parents encouraged students to gather up their comic books for a good old-fashioned book burning. In his book, The Tencent Plague, David Haju shares his description of the book-burning event. The flames rose to a height of more than 25 feet as the children, their teachers, the principal, and a couple of reporters and photographers from the area papers watched for more than an hour. When the Associated Press picked up the story from local accounts, readers of the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, and dozens of other papers around the country learned how, just three years after the Second World War, American citizens were burning books. Unquote. Similar events took place in Binghamton, New York, where students at St. Patrick's Parochial School burned over 2,000 comics, and they were featured in Time magazine. A Cub Scout troop in New Jersey went door-to-door to gather comic books and burned them in the city's Victory Park. And in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, a Girl Scout troop gathered what they deemed objectionable material and held a mock trial that ended in a verdict stating comic books were, quote, leading young people astray and building up false conceptions in the minds of youth, unquote before burning the books. In Vancouver, 8,000 comics were burned by the J.C. Youth leadership. To the comic book industry, the message seemed clear. And as a result, in October of 1954, just five months after Gaines's testimony to the Senate subcommittee, the industry adopted the Comic Code Authority, a set of guidelines and rules for what was and wasn't acceptable in comics. While entirely voluntary... Comics that had the Comic Code Authority seal, the CCA seal of approval on the cover, meant that parents and retailers would feel confident they could sell or buy comics for their kids without any public backlash. Here are some highlights from the 1954 CCA rules. Quote, Crimes shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal. 
to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice, or to inspire others to desire to imitate criminals. If crime is depicted, it shall be as a sordid and unpleasant activity. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for the established authority. Criminals shall not be presented as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. In every instance, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. Scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gunplay, physical agony, the gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. No comic magazine shall use the words horror or terror in its title. All scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism shall not be permitted. All lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. Inclusion of stories dealing with evil shall be used or shall be published only when the intent is to illustrate a moral issue, and in no case shall evil be presented alluringly, nor so as to enter the sensibilities of the reader. Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with the walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. Profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meaning are forbidden. Nudity in any form is prohibited, as is indecent or undue exposure. Suggestive and salacious illustration or suggestive posture is unacceptable. Females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at nor portrayed. Rape scenes as well as sexual abnormalities are unacceptable. Seduction and rape shall never be shown or suggested. Sex perversion or any inference to the same is strictly prohibited. Clothed figures shall never be presented in such a way as to be offensive or contrary to good taste or morals. While many of these rules were put into place as retaliation against EC Publishing and Gaines's testimony debacle, the rules still impacted DC Comics. If Superman can't take down corrupt police officials and slumlords, who could he take on? Could Wonder Woman still be tied up, or would that be too suggestive to readers? Could Batman, a vigilante who fights crime at night, be too scary? The impact of the Comic Code Authority meant that DC would have to tone down some of its more intense scenes. But I think that DC Comics was already willing to do what was necessary. After all, as World War II ended and the Cold War began, Superman could be heard saying the phrase that he was fighting for truth, justice, and the American way on the radio as early as 1942, and then amplified on television when the adventures of Superman took to the air in the 1950s. Superman! who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. I've read DC comics that were released prior to the adoption of the Comic Code Authority, and I've read comics DC produced between 1954 and 1971. And for the most part, these are tame, non-threatening stories that are easily forgettable, as they told stories that seemed right for the golden age of pre-war America. In 1961, DC Comics introduced the world to the concept of the multiverse in the pages of Showcase Presents No. 4 by Garner Fox and Carmine Infantino. In the issue, a very 1960s Barry Allen found himself meeting Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash, when he accidentally vibrated his molecules so fast that he phased to another Earth. Earth 2, to be exact. Also, please don't ask why an Earth that predated Barry Allen would be called Earth 2 instead of Earth 1, because that way lies madness. The Silver Age was born, 
and it gave DC creators a chance to reimagine their classic lineup of superheroes, give them new origins, and tell fresh stories that would be hep to the kids of the groovy 1960s man. Except, Barry Allen was still a blonde-haired, blue-eyed man with a flat top that worked for the police. And Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern, was still part of the military-industrial complex. And also, a space cop. Superman and Batman became chummy with The Man, and Batman went from a dark adventure of the night to a space-faring hero who would take to the stars in his Bat-Rocket. The end result was a huge upswing in the demand for comics, and sales for DC Comics increased during the time period, climaxing when Batman hit the airwaves in 1966. But while DC Comics may have been flying high on the success of the Silver Age, the company seemed stymied by its competitor Marvel Comics. In 1961, on the verge of shutting down, Marvel Comics editor Stan Lee introduced the world to the Fantastic Four, and over the next seven years grew its cavalcade of costume do-gooders even while under publishing restrictions. At the time, DC may have been the Goliath when it came to comic publishing, but Marvel was certainly David in this parable, and it was looking for a giant to slay. The success of the Fantastic Four, Thor, and The Amazing Spider-Man pushed Marvel Comics closer and closer to the top of the sales charts with each passing month. In 1968, Superman was selling over 600,000 copies per issue. Archie Comics was in the number two spot with 566,000 issues sold per month. Batman rounded out the top three, and the other Superman-related comics, Superboy, World's Finest Comics, Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, Action Comics, and Adventure Comics, which was mostly Legion of Superheroes at this time, taking up those remaining ten slots. Betty and Veronica from Archie Comics landed in at the number nine slot. Even Tarzan Comics from Gold Key were outselling what Marvel was offering, but by the end of 1968, Amazing Spider-Man was easily selling more than 370,000 copies per issue, and Fantastic Four selling 344,000 copies per issue. Detective Comics was in the number 20 slot with Thor right behind, and Daredevil nearly tied with Pep Comics for the number 22 slot. There was something going on with the stories coming out of Marvel at this time. They did feature superheroes in capes and tights fighting against incredible odds and taking down villains with each issue, but the characters were flawed. Peter Parker and his Parker luck always kept him working for pennies and falling in and out of love. The Hulk was a misunderstood Goliath that everyone perceived as a monster, and when he wasn't saying forsooth, Thor was a doctor with a physical injury requiring him to use a cane. Matt Murdock was a blind lawyer. Dr. Strange's hands had been horribly mangled in an accident. Stan Lee's idea that these characters should have flaws to make them more relatable seemed to pay off as readers continued to buy the titles. Instead of flying into space or going undercover for zany adventures, Marvel Comics had the heroes confronting real societal problems of the day. And while some people didn't care for Marvel's approach to storytelling, they did have an impact. From Stan Lee's Soapbox, quote, from time to time, we receive letters from readers who wonder why there's so much moralizing in our mags. They take great pains to point out that comics are supposed to be escapist reading and nothing more. But somehow, I can't see it that way. It seems to me that a story without a message, however subliminal, is like a man without a soul. In fact, even the most escapist literature of all, old-time fairy tales and heroic legends, contained moral and philosophical points of view. 
At every college campus where I speak, there's as much discussion of war and peace, civil rights, and the so-called youth rebellion as there is of our Marvel mags, per se. None of us lives in a vacuum. None of us is untouched by the everyday events around us, events which shape our stories just as they shape our lives. Sure, our tales can be called escapist, but just because something's for fun doesn't mean we have to blanket our brains while we read it. Excelsior. Unquote. That's from Stan Lee's Soapbox. So much moralizing from the Avengers number 74, March 1970. I've already shared how the Comic Code Authority came to being in 1954, but in 1971, Marvel Comics and Stan Lee essentially shut it down. According to Lee and publicized in newspapers, in 1970, Nixon's Department of Health Education approached Marvel to see if they would be interested in publishing an anti-drug message in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. From the outside, the idea of an anti-drug story seems like a no-brainer, and certainly it was one of the societal woes plaguing the country at the time. Stanley agreed and proceeded to write the story with Gil Kane doing the pencils and John Romita Sr. inking the issue. But... When submitted to the Comic Code Authority for approval, the story was rejected outright by John Goldwater. And for those of you who don't know, John Goldwater just so happened to be the publisher of Archie Comics and was the president of the Comics Magazine Association that oversaw the CCA. He said he was opposed to, quote, any story dealing with drugs, unquote. (laughs) This is an interesting quandary because the request for the depiction and consequences of drug use was coming from the federal government. Yet the self-governing board created by the comic industry to avoid federal regulations said no. In the end, I think Stanley made the right choice. From the February 4th, 1971 issue of the New York Times, Lee said, quote, We can't keep our heads in the sand. I said that if this story would help one kid anywhere in the world not to try drugs or lay off drugs one day earlier, then it's worth it rather than waiting for the code authority to give me permission. Unquote. Marvel Comics released Amazing Spider-Man number 96 with the cover date of 1971, and it caught the attention of the country and Marvel seemed to gain the upper hand in the comic war. While the Comic Code Authority continued until February of 2011, Marvel Comics and other publishers realized they didn't need the organization to sell comics. The CCA revised its code in 1971 to allow for more violence, and in 1989, the ban on references to homosexuality were lifted. But not everyone was happy with Marvel's actions, including Carmine Infantino, who, in 1971, was the editorial director at DC Comics. In the New York Times article, Infantino said he had been lobbying for revisions of the Comic Code Authority because he was also working on a comic book dealing with drug abuse. Quote, You know, I will not in any way, shape, or form put out a comic magazine without the proper authorities scrutinizing it so that it does not do any harm, not only to the industry, but also to the children who read it. Until such a time, I will not bring out a drug book, unquote. While the New York Times article didn't mention the issue in question, we can be pretty sure that Infantino was referring to Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 85 and number 86, written by Denny O'Neill with art by Neil Adams and Dick Giordano, which revealed Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy was addicted to heroin. That issue arrived in August of 1971, four months after The Amazing Spider-Man. While it wasn't the first time DC appeared to be playing catch-up to Marvel, at the time it was certainly the most public. And that's really where DC Comics appeared to be by the mid-1970s, always playing catch-up. There are stories that I've heard that DC would analyze issues released by the House of Ideas looking for ways they could mimic what Marvel was doing. Maybe Marvel's success was because gorillas were on the cover, 
or suggestions of bondage were there. DC went so far as to create a checkerboard banner that ran on top of every issue released in 1966 and 1967 as a way to attract the attention of readers to its comics. But it was more than just what was on the cover. Marvel Comics had been released from its publishing restrictions that limited the number of titles it could release each month, and it began increasing the number of titles appearing on the newsstands. It was a war of attrition, and it looked like Marvel was going to win. When Marvel raised its page count and price, DC planned on doing the same, except it had to purchase their paper stock a year in advance and was locked into the higher page count. Marvel was under no restrictions. It reduced the price in the page count just a few months later while DC was forced to keep the price high. In 1967, Marvel Comics surpassed DC Comics in the number of issues sold. According to one site, in 1966, DC Comics sold 7,337,539 issues, while Marvel Comics sold 6,640,382 issues. A year later, Marvel sold 7,042,993 issues, while DC Comics sold 6,324,335 issues. By 1971, Marvel Comics sold 7,466,999 issues, while DC was only selling 5,074,665 issues. Even though the battle between Marvel and DC seemed to be settled, with DC falling more and more behind each year... All was not well with the publishing industry in general. Newspaper sales, magazine sales, even comic book sales continued to drop year after year. Even with the introduction of the direct market, uh, comic book stores, newsstand sales were dropping far faster than the comic book stores were growing. Quote, Comics had always been a cyclical business, and almost everybody in 1971 thought that superheroes must inevitably be on their way out again. That's why there was such a gold rush to find the next biggest genre. Sword and Sorcery looked like it might be a contender, and there was a lot of new mystery, watered-down horror comics without much horror, and war and western comics being churned out in this period. But the classic Marvel, Stan's Marvel, was still seen as something of a fad, even by Stan himself. And the common wisdom was that everybody was going to be doing something else very soon, possibly in another field entirely. Unquote. That is a quote by Tom Brevoort in an interview on the Great American Novel website. Chasing the Dragon for the next hit is something that continues even today, whether it's a new comic book title or a new algorithm to move your video to the front page of YouTube. In the end, these short-term hits are going to catch up to you. But that's a story for another time. As 1977 drew near, though, DC Comics thought they had it figured out. They had a plan. They had a plan that was sure to work. And it was going to be huge. Chapter 3. The Plan In 1976, DC Comics needed to do something if it planned to compete with Marvel Comics. It needed to move in a new direction. It was that, or close down the comic book publishing group completely. I know, that sounds like a far-fetched idea, but Warner Publishing saw the dropping sales and considered ending the publishing arm. And keeping the characters, what we call intellectual property or IP alive for licensing purposes only. Quote, In 1976, I had just returned from a whirlwind promotional tour for the Superman Spider-Man Treasury Edition. Marvel and I worked out a deal that made this first-ever landmark crossover book possible 
And to my memory, the thing sold an amazing 500,000 copies. The promo tour included radio and TV interviews and convention appearances. When I got back to the office, I was called into a meeting with some Warner Brothers brass, including Warner Director of Licensing Corporation of America co-founder Jay Emmett. Honestly, it was not a surprise to me to find out both Marvel and DC showed financial losses in 1975. The much-speculated paper shortage never occurred. Faced with 1975's final numbers, the Warner Brothers executives above me decided to withdraw their support. I was understandably quite upset. Unquote. That's Carmine Infantino, former publisher and president of DC Comics in his autobiography, The Amazing World of Carmine Infantino, released in 2001. Enter Janine Kahn. A native of Boston, Massachusetts, Kahn graduated from Radcliffe College with a degree in art history, and by the time she caught the eye of DC Comics, she had already founded three magazines for young adults. The first was Kids, written for kids and by kids, which tackled subjects like diversity, environmental issues, and drug abuse. Sound familiar? She also created Smash, a magazine for Xerox educational publications, but it was the launch of Dynamite magazine that caught everyone's attention. Dynamite was released through Scholastic, and as a magazine I definitely read growing up before comic books caught my full attention. Dynamite was an activity magazine that included tricks, games, contests, and recipes. It was also a way of keeping us young ones up to date on popular culture. The October 1974 issue featured a tell-all for Herbie Rides Again, and often featured the big celebrity of the day on the cover, including such big names as The Fonz, The Fall Guy, and for issue number nine, released in 1975... John Denver. If I remember correctly, I learned some keen disco moves from the pages of Dynamite magazine. Yeah, let that sink in. <laughs> Beyond learning the hustle, Dynamite magazine really changed the nature of Scholastic, and at the time, Dynamite was the most successful publication in the company's history. It was probably the success of Dynamite that caught the attention of DC Comics. Before joining the company, Khan met with and convinced the head of Warner Publishing that they should keep making comics instead of just becoming an IP mill. Quote, There were very few women in the field when I joined, and of course, anxiety and horror washed through the DC halls when it was known that I had been hired. After all, I was in my 20s, from outside the industry, and shudder, a girl. The perception, and I'm sure it's equal parts with, was that I would be gone within a year. But of course I stayed. The learning curve was hard, not just because there was so much to understand about the comic book industry, but also because DC was part of a larger corporation with its own culture and politics and protocol. And although I think we're relatively free of politics now, DC was rife with them when I came, and they were made all the worse by my presence. Lines were drawn, and people took sides. Unquote. Khan joined DC Comics as its publisher in February 1976, and was instrumental in revamping the company. First up, she named the company from National Periodical Publications, Inc. to DC Comics. For those of you who have been gritting your teeth the entire time because I kept calling it DC instead of National, you can relax now. Why was this such a big deal? At the end of every TV show, instead of the in-credit reading based on a book from National Periodical Publications, Inc., it could now read, quote, based on books from DC Comics, unquote. This would impact such shows as Legends of the Superheroes, Wonder Woman with Linda Carter, and Challenge of the Super Friends, just to name a few. Between 1976 and 1980, Warner Brothers had three live-action series, one television special, and five animated series in production. With a new company name, it also needed a new look, and Khan commissioned graphic designer Milton Glaser to design the now-famous DC Bullet logo that was in place at the company from 1977 until 2005. 
you can still find the logo in use today on DC Archived editions. Khan refined the editorial process at the company and began hiring young writers to revitalize titles once again, eventually bringing in Steve Englehart, Roy Thomas, Gene Kalan, Marv Wolfman, and George Perez. Unlike other regime changes, Khan seemed to be receptive to releasing comics that were already in the works from her predecessor, Carmine Infantino, releasing the 1976 revival of All-Star Comics, the 12-issue Karate Kid series, and Man Bat, while also launching new titles like Ragman, Starfire, Super Friends, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, and Welcome Back, Cotter. In 1976, DC Comics had 21 new titles or relaunches on the stands, and compared to 1975, a total of eight new comics were available for readers to purchase. And then, like a shot across the bow, Jeanette Kahn and DC Comics denounced its plans to radically change its publishing plans in a full-page ad running in all of its books, teasing a major announcement. Beginning June 1st, the DC Explosion. More pages, more stories, and the most exciting superheroes in comics— Watch for full details next month. Comic books sold in November 1977 with a cover date of February 1978 featured Onward and Upward, a published Oriole from Jeanette Kahn that spelled out what was to come. Quote, As you've no doubt noticed, we've raised our prices this month. Not totally shocking as comics have gone up in price every 15 months or so for the last five or six years. Unquote. For DC Comics, the cover price rose from 30 cents to 35 cents in early 1977. Khan continues, quote, But hopefully you've noticed that the number of pages in our standard comic books have also gone up. We've added eight pages of all new story, no ads, no reprints, along with a price increase. With a single exception to our story-packed dollar comics, this is the first time anybody in the field is not giving you less for your money. In fact, it's a 47% gain in story for a 43% raise in your price, unquote. And DC had even bigger plans for comics that would go on to have a 50-cent cover price. Quote, We're excited because we believe the 50-cent book, like the highly successful dollar comics package we introduced 18 months ago, will be a more attractive product to our retailer as well as for the reader. Our comics should be a little easier to find. Better still, the 25 pages of story format gives us something we haven't had for the better part of a decade. The chance to do really full-length stories with fully developed subplots and characterizations. Unquote. I pause here again to point out that as I've been pursuing back issues of comics from this period, it's remarkable to see comics like the Legion of Superheroes suddenly have story plot elements that would span multiple issues, with some of those elements not coming together until much later as the series progress. I also note that this is exactly what Marvel was doing in all of its books since the 1960s, which may have been a contributing factor to Marvel taking the lead as comic publisher during this time period. Quote, the new format also gives us a bit of room to experiment. You'll see the return of Swamp Thing, original characters like the Vixen, new Western and war titles. We'll even be able to schedule a couple of titles which will represent some of the best DC comics printed in the last four decades. And we'll be making dollar comics look even more attractive because starting this month, we're taking out all of the ads. You'll be getting an additional page or two of story, but now we'll have the freedom to run more two-page spreads and wraparound covers. The dollar comics, including our latest edition adventure comics, will now have 68 pages of all new story and art from cover to cover, not a page of ads. We've been calling this the DC Explosion, and that's what it truly is, an explosion of new ideas, new concepts, new characters, and new formats. We now have limitless opportunities to experiment, to do longer and indeed better stories, to be more flexible in the type of materials we are presenting. The best 
is getting better. Khan closes out the publish Oriole with, quote, But, and I know you're expecting this, we're not stopping there. Even as I write these words, I have working proposals on my desk for no less than 10 new projects, not all of which are new titles. We're continuing to grow and branch out, to boldly go where no comics company has gone before, and we're glad you're here with us every step of the way. Unquote. This was big news for DC Comics. Instead of 14 titles released in 1974, DC was planning on releasing 57 new titles over the next four years. Even with the increase in page count and removal of ads, some didn't know if the price increase gamble was going to pay off for DC Comics. Jim Shooter, then Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief, in an interview with the Comics Journal number 40, said, quote, I don't like DC's thinking on the explosion. I don't think it's going to work out the way they have it planned. Obviously, the people above me don't think so either, or I'd be hearing from them. I'm not worried too much about that. Let them mess around with that. Marvel Comics is doing fine. We're doing great. I feel that if we have the lowest price package on the market, that there'll be an awful lot of kids who will opt for the lowest priced package, especially because I think our books are pretty great. Unquote. Here's a rundown of the new and ongoing titles DC Comics announced in June, July, and August of 1978, which I've divided into five categories. Dollar comics, superhero titles, Western titles, supernatural titles, and war titles. Oh, by the way, feel free to applaud and yell wildly when I call out your favorite title or character. I'm sure the people sitting around you will really appreciate it. Trust, trust me on this one. Just, just do it. In the dollar comics category, we have Adventure Comics, Batman Family, a DC Special Series, which was the umbrella for the extra-large editions of DC's regular titles, GI Combat, Superman Family, and World's Finest. Spoiler alert! That World's Finest 271 that an 11-year-old me would buy in 1981, that was one of the surviving titles to come out of the DC explosion. In the superhero comics category, we have Action Comics, All-Star Comics, Batman, Black Lightning, released in April of 1977. This was DC's first black superhero. The Brave and the Bold, DC Comics Presents, Detective Comics, Dynamic Classics, which featured reprints of superhero stories from the early 1970s, Firestorm, The Flash, Green Lantern, Justice League of America, Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth, Showcase, another Umbrella series for trying out new and returning characters like Dead Man and the Creeper and Star Hunters, Steal the Indestructible Man. We also had Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, Super Friends, based on the Saturday morning cartoon series, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Warlord. I didn't want to create another category for fantasy comics as Warlord was the only title released that fit into that category. DC did have some other fantasy titles, but the publisher had either canceled them or lost the rights to the characters prior to the DC Explosion announcement. In the Supernatural Comics category, we had Doorway to Nightmares, Ghosts, House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Secrets of the Haunted House, Unexpected, Unknown Soldier, Weird War Tales, and Witching Hour. If it's weird to see DC Comics publishing Supernatural and Horror Comics, following the comic code... Marvel debacle in 1971, the code was revised to allow for spookier comics to hit the shelves. It also allowed for creator Marv Wolfman to get his name back on the cover of a comic book because now you could have Wolfman in your comics. In the war comics category, we have Army at War, Battle Classics, Men of War, Our Fighting Forces, and Sergeant Rock. Under the Western comics category, we have Jonah Hex and Weird Western Tales. 
I'm putting this under the Western comic category mainly because the title was originally called All-Star Western, but was changed with issue number 12, and then after Hex left for his own series in 1977, it just seemed wrong to move it. Listen, I stand by my decision. There were also a number of announced but unpublished comics that were in the pipeline. This included Aquaman, Claw the Unconquered, Demand Classics, Mr. Miracle, New Gods, The Secret Society of Supervillains, Shade the Changing Man, The Vixen, and Western Classics. If you've been clicking your tally counter, that's an impressive 52 titles DC was set to unleash on the world in 1978. And the big price increase that Jim Shooter thought was a bad idea was also something Khan thought would actually help all of the comic book publishers, not just DC Comics. In Comic Media News number 29, cover date January, uh, February 1977, uh, Jeanette Khan said, quote, The current package is absolutely untenable. 17 pages in reprints and a 30-cent cover price? There's no place to go, really. And yet there was a time when you paid 10 cents for a comic book and 10 cents for Time magazine. The trouble was, we didn't keep up with the rest of the industry in price increases. 20 years passed before we dared to make the great leap to 12 cents. Then we tried 15 cents. Then 20 cents. 25 cents and now 30 cents. But still, all that's too low. Time magazine is now a dollar. We should be a dollar. And that's where we're headed. It's a major experiment, but I think it's the answer not just for us, but for Marvel, Archie, and any comic book company. The dollar pages is just like the Golden Age format in that we'll be having 80 pages. 14 of ads, and 66 of all new material. It'll be a change for writers and artists to do stories of any length that seem appropriate to the story rather than cramming it into a meager 17 pages. It's going to give the wholesaler and retailer a chance to make money. The retailer, who for years has not wanted to carry comic books in his shop, saying, why should I? What does 50% of 30 cents mean to anybody? All they do is clog up my newsstand and keep people from buying Playboy and all those other money-making magazines. Unquote. Bottom line. Every comic book above a dollar was going to bring in three times the profit for everyone. If you were a newsstand owner or operator, three times the money from what you made before certainly makes carrying comics a good business proposition. In a commentary published in the Comics Reader number 153 in February 1978, Mike Tiefenbacher, executive producer of the Comics Reader and comic book historian, wrote, quote, Each time a new format has been introduced by DC, one could be certain that a year and a half later their comics would be back to the industry-standard-sized 32 pages. But this time, I'm not sure that will happen. Some circumstances exist that didn't before that may allow a bigger format to succeed. The change will have the effect of almost doubling the current roster of continuing features from around 45 to 80. This not only means an increase in available work for professionals, it means that variety will be the main attraction of DC Comics again, something that has always set DC apart from Marvel and is a major part of DC's appeal. In the past size versus price increase, DC was alone, with Marvel maintaining the 32-page size from their position of dominance in the sales market, and in each case, DC ultimately backed down. However, I now believe that the balance has shifted to the point where Marvel's own dominance now is in sheer volume of titles. The sales differential that existed in the early 70s is probably gone, and DC can probably match Marvel sales on a book-to-book basis. By June, though, the balance may have shifted in DC's favor with the coming of the Superman film. Unless the film is a real turkey, I'd expect sales on the Superman comic to double, with a coattail effect on the rest of the line. If Superman is in demand, a 50-cent price tag isn't going to deter a potential buyer. Unquote. This was the plan. This was the DC explosion. This was a company trying something different from what they had done before. From the look of it, it could have been powerful. It could have been popular. 
and it could have pushed DC back to the top of the charts in its perceived battle with Marvel Comics. But as we've seen time and time again, there are those that resist change. There are those who aren't willing to give a new idea a chance. New ideas and and big risks are what change industries. They can change the way we live and the way we think and make our overall life experience a lot better. I honestly believe the idea that Khan and the rest of the DC staff were pushing forward would have worked. But someone upstairs had other ideas. It's not nice to fool Mother Nature. One more thing. Jeanette Kahn oversaw the launch of Vertigo and Milestone Media in 1993 and the death and rebirth of Superman. Kahn moved from publisher, was named president of DC Comics in 1981, and in 1989 stepped down as the publisher to resume title of editor-in-chief while retaining the office of president until she left DC Comics in 2022. When Kahn left DC Comics, almost half the employees were women. Jeanette Kahn was a major force in comics. And if you don't believe me, go back and read comics from 1977 until 2022, and then re-listen to this chapter again. This concludes part one, the DC explosion. DC seems to have everything right. DC seems to know what it needs to do to win the comic book war. But will it? Tune in next time when we look at The DC Implosion. The DC Explosion was written and produced by me, Stephen Schleicher, for Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. There were some fantastic resources that I pulled from to put this special presentation together, and I would encourage you to check out the show notes to go and listen or read the original source materials. Specifically, I would have you listen to the nearly two-hour testimony from WNYC of the uh, comic juvenile delinquency hearing that featured full testimony from Frederick Wortham, as well as the complete William Gaines testimony before Congress. It's fascinating. Thank you to everyone who supports this show and all the shows that we do at Major Spoilers. Without your support, this special presentation wouldn't have been made possible. If you would like to listen to the entire DC Explosion, DC Implosion episodes commercial-free and you want to support more work like this, please consider heading over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Majorspoilers for more information. Why? Because we know that you love comics and we do too, and we will talk with you soon. This podcast is copyright 2023 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.